0: Alien Evolution and Civilian Space Missions. You're listening to Are We There Yet, the radio show exploring space exploration. Hi, I'm Brendan Byrne. If we ever do find aliens, what will they look like? One zoologist says a lot more like us than we think. Cambridge zoologist Arik Kirschenbaum's new book, The Zoologist's Guide to the Galaxy. What Animals on Earth Reveal About Aliens and Ourselves, examines how animal behavior is universal and how aliens might share some of the same evolutionary traits as organisms here on Earth. We'll speak with Kirschenbaum about his research on terrestrial animals and alien life and his new book. But first, at 10 years old, Haley Arsenault was diagnosed with osteosarcoma, a type of bone cancer. Now at age 29, she's a physician's assistant at St. Jude Children's Research Hospital and about to launch to space. She's joining billionaire Jared Isaacman on SpaceX's Crew Dragon capsule later this year on the first all-civilian mission orbiting the Earth. We'll talk with Arsenault about the mission and her message of hope to those fighting childhood cancer here on Earth. That's ahead on Are We There Yet? here on WMFE, America's space station. Well, before we jump into things, we've got an awesome event coming up later this week. This podcast and radio show is celebrating its fifth anniversary, and to celebrate, we're hosting a virtual conversation with former NASA Administrator Charlie Bolden and retired NASA astronaut Nicole Stott, and we want you to join too. The event is this Thursday, March 18th at 7 p.m. Eastern Time, and it's free. You can register for the Zoom event online at wmfe.org events. If you can't be there, we'll air part of that conversation next week. Billionaire Jared Isaacman bought four seats on a SpaceX Crew Dragon mission to orbit the Earth. It will launch from Kennedy Space Center as early as later this year. Isaacman is the commander. He's keeping one seat for his company, and the other two he donated to St. Jude. One of those seats will be awarded to someone who donates to St. Jude this year. The other is going to Haley Arsenault. She's a pediatric cancer survivor, and when she launches, she'll be the youngest American to fly to space and the first to do so with a prosthesis. Metal rods replaced most of her legs during her treatment. Arsenault joins us now to talk about the mission and the message she hopes to deliver from space. Haley, thanks so much for speaking with us.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: So there have been a few superlatives used to describe both you and this mission. You're going to be the youngest American to travel to orbit, first person with a prosthetic body part, all on the first all-civilian mission. Um, But I want to know how you describe yourself and you describe this mission.
1: And, you know, one thing I'm going to add is I'll be the first pediatric cancer survivor in space, and that's what means the most to me out of all those firsts. Um, just this precedent that it's going to, it's going to set and uh, what it's going to show my patients who are going through cancer treatment, what they can be capable of. Um, but this mission, this first all-civilian mission to space, is being used for good. It's being used as a fundraiser for St. Jude Children's Research Hospital, and um, and we're hoping to to raise two hundred million dollars, and um, I'm representing hope, and I'm incredibly honored to be part of this.
0: Uh, you said you want your patients to to you know see what you're capable of and, and see the things that you're doing. You know how how have they reacted to the news so far when you shared it with them?
1: They are so excited, and I love that. Probably ninety five percent of them have now told me that they want to be astronauts. And I told them, you know, I'm going to be the first pediatric cancer survivor in space, but I won't be the last. And, um, and it's also been incredibly meaningful to me um, just seeing that this mission is giving them hope. And I'll never forget um, the day after I was announced that I got back to work, um, this mother and daughter stopped me in the hall. I had never met them before. And the mom told me, she had tears in her eyes telling me that this mission was giving her daughter so much hope. And that's why we're going on this mission, to inspire others and, and to show them that they don't need to limit themselves.
0: Obviously, it's, a, it's inspired your patients, others around you, um, you know, countless people across the world that are, you know, entering the sweepstakes to join you. Um, but take me back to the moment that you found out that you were selected for this. What was that like?
1: It was a shock. So, St. Jay told me they had something to talk to me about. And they gave me a call in early January, and they told me about this mission. And then they asked if I wanted to be part of it and actually go to space. And immediately I said, yes, yes, there was no hesitation there. And, um, and they actually encouraged me to talk to my family about it and to think about it. Um, and I called my family, my, my mom and then my brother and sister-in-law are actually aerospace engineers Okay. and my family was fully supportive. And, Mm -hmm. and so I, I just, within a matter of hours, I said, yes, like absolutely put my name down. I am committed.
0: Obviously, you were excited about that. I mean, what else went through your mind were you what did you think about risks uh what you'd have to do to train i mean or was this just a pretty
1: easy yes for you? It was an easy yes. There was nothing that they could have said that would have um in any way made me not want to go um but of course, I did think about all that and and i talked um i talked a lot to my brother and sister in law and um and I watched a lot of youtube videos and and i've been doing some research and it, it's just incredible what SpaceX has done and uh, I'm incredibly fortunate to be part of this mission.
0: So you, you were selected uh, or you were notified of your selection earlier this year. Um, the launch could happen as soon as later this year. Um, what's kind of been the training uh, regimen that you've been going through uh, to prepare you for this? What are you working on?
1: So our training will officially start at the end of the month when our third and fourth crew members are selected. And the first thing that we're going to do is the centrifuge training, and, um, where we're going to be spun around really, really fast and get our bodies used to the G-forces. And then we're going to spend a lot of time in the simulator, we're going to spend a lot of time in our spacesuits and, um, and doing some survival practice, but on top of that, I'll get some additional training as I'm the medical officer of this mission.
0: And what what does that entail because i don't I don't remember hearing about any medical officers on on NASA crew dragon missions. Um, what are some of your responsibilities
1: so we're still working on our research projects um while we're up there but i'm I may be having something to do with that and then um and then if if any crew member had any medical issues while we're in orbit, then I would respond.
0: probably good to have someone with your training up there right
1: <laughs> Jared was really happy he didn't have to learn how to give shots. <laughs>
0: So, th- so this won't be all fun then, right? You're you're thinking about doing some some scientific research while you're up there. This isn't going to be a, a four day joyride <laughs> through orbit. You're, you're
1: absolutely correct. We uh, we want to use this to progress science in any way possible. So there have been several research ideas um, that are floating around and we're really interested in anything that we can do to help.
0: So you're still working at St. Jude as, as a, uh, a PA, right? Yes, I, um,
1: I, have, I have my dream job. I work as a PA with inpatient leukemia and lymphoma patients and I'm still working full time.
0: And how will that change when you when you go into training i mean that, that's that's going to be a tough balance to you know be someone who works in the medical field and working with these patients and training to go to space <laughs> that's a lot
1: it It will definitely be a balance um but St. Jude is so fully supportive of, um, of this mission and, and I'm just excited every time I, I train and come back and I'll get to tell my patients more and more stories about it.
0: We've talked briefly about risk and, and you said, you know, you didn't think too much about it, um, you know, but are, do you understand the risks um, that, you know, come with a mission like this? What have you talked to SpaceX about? Um, what have you talked to your family about um about going to space space is not easy and, and there's a lot of inherent risks in in this mission uh what's going through your mind when it comes to that
1: i sat down with um with the spacex director of our mission and and we um we went over all the risks and they wanted me to know what i was getting myself into which i, I really respect they took that time to explain everything to me um i think everything in life has risks and um, and spacex has an incredible safety record for this Falcon 9, and um, and so I, I felt fully confident saying yes.
0: Are you paying a lot more attention to the astronaut launches now on, on uh, Falcon 9s?
1: I absolutely am, and I think we're gonna go to the um, the launch of Crew 2 in April, which that'll be the first launch I'm getting to see in person, and I can't wait to just feel the ground rumble and um, and get to be so close to what I'll be doing later this year.
0: That was going to be my next question is had you seen a launch, but no, this this will be your first one coming up. But, I mean, yes. have you seen some of the SpaceX hardware? Have you traveled to Hawthorne? Have you gotten to see the Falcon 9 and the Crew Dragon capsules?
1: I have. I've been to SpaceX three times now. And, uh, and I think that's what helps me feel so confident is I've met the lead engineers for every aspect of this mission, and they really know what they're doing. Um, but I've gotten to sit in the Dragon Simulator, I've gotten to, to see the Falcon 9, and I am just so ready to go. It's going to be an incredible year.
0: I know you all are still fleshing out the details of the mission, but what do we know so far as to, to what your, your trip will be like? What are you going to experience how long will you be in space?
1: So, we're going to be orbiting in lower Earth orbit for a few days. And then um, while we're up there, we're planning to do some science experiments. And what I'm looking forward to the most while we're up there is we're going to video call the St. Jude kids. And I think it will be incredible for them to, I mean, first of all, it's going to be fun for them to see space. And, um, and, but I think it's going to be so meaningful to them too, to know that they can do this as well. I was in their shoes 19 years ago. Um, and so, I, I understand what it's like and and they can do the same thing and I just really hope that it uh, it shows them to dream big.
0: From the few that have gone to space astronauts report a new outlook on life after seeing the earth from space it's called the overview effect Um, you know I'm wondering if you've spoken to any other astronauts about those kind of emotions um, and also how you're preparing yourself for that because it is an emotional experience to see you know the world against the blackness of space. Um, how are you preparing yourself for that?
1: I have heard about the overview effect and I plan to, um, we're going to have some meetings with astronauts throughout the year and I can't wait to hear their perspective on it. But I don't think there's really any way that I can prepare myself for that. I think it will, it will absolutely blow me away in that moment and um, I don't think I can even try to imagine what it's going to be like because I think it's just going to be unbelievable.
0: I mean, you in particular, though, that has such a unique perspective on life, um, you know, from your triumphs as, as a child and from what you do every day as uh, a medical professional, um, you know, I've got to think that you're going to have a completely different perspective looking back on Earth uh, than anyone else would.
1: I I do think you're correct and um, I think just my my outlook on life is so changed because of what I've been through and also the fact that I've I've been through this at St. Jude a place that that gave me so much hope and um, and made this difficult situation not only bearable but actually fun and um, and I think that so much of my zest for life is is because of St. Jude and and how they made me feel like I was part of the family here. Uh,
0: In the past, you know, many people with disabilities would be unable to meet NASA's medical standards um, for astronauts. Uh, But because this is a private mission, um, more people are going to be able to go on this. Um, You know, what do you think the future holds for, um, you know, getting more people into space with, with you being kind of one of the first case studies of this? I mean, what's your outlook on the future for private space?
1: I'm so glad that you mentioned that because that's one thing I'm really excited about with this mission is it's changing the perspective of what an astronaut can look like and you no longer have to be physically perfect to go to space because in the past I never would have been able to be an astronaut and um, and I think that you're absolutely correct in that these these civilian missions are opening it up to, to people who um, to who maybe have disabilities. And it's it's an incredible honor for me um, to represent so many of the other people who aren't physically perfect.
0: You talked a lot about uh, the things that you're doing for your patients and, and some of the other patients at St. Jude, um, what you want some of these cancer survivors to, to see about their future and be inspired for the future. But it's not just these patients that are going to be following you, Haley. I mean, you're going to have hundreds of thousands of people watching you along with this mission, finding some inspiration from you. Uh, what do you want others to take away, uh, from this mission and and while following you through this year of training and, and, uh, and, and what you're going to be doing from space, what should we take back from
1: this? And I think you're right about that. I hope that this mission doesn't only inspire kids going through cancer treatment, but I think, I think everyone in their lives has had to overcome something. And, um, and I, I, really want them to take away from this, hope. Because hope is priceless. Hope got me through cancer. And um, and I I want to show them that um, that they should hold on to hope.
0: We've been speaking with Haley Arsino. She will be flying on a Crew Dragon capsule on one of the first all-civilian missions to space. Haley, thank you so much for speaking with us.
1: Thank you for having me. I appreciate it.
0: More info on the mission and how to donate to join the sweepstakes is available at Inspiration4, that's the number four, .com. Still to come, what can animals here on Earth teach us about aliens? Are We There Yet is back in a minute. You're listening to Are We There Yet here on WMFE, America's space station. I'm Brendan Byrne. If we ever do find aliens, what will they look like? One zoologist says a lot more like us than we think. Cambridge zoologist Arik Kirschenbaum's new book, The Zoologist's Guide to the Galaxy, What Animals on Earth Reveal About Aliens and Ourselves, examines how animal behavior is universal and how aliens might share some of the same evolutionary traits as organisms here on Earth. Arik Kirschenbaum, thanks for joining us. Well, thank you for inviting me. When thinking about aliens... Uh, why are we looking at animals here on Earth? Why are you studying animals to predict what other life forms will look like out in the universe? It's quite a, an astonishing
2: thing when you think about it, though it's fairly obvious, which is that life has things in common throughout the universe, right? Life didn't just arise on Earth in some kind of weird, <clears throat> weird coincidence. What we see happening on Earth, the processes by which life evolves on Earth, they're the same processes that are taking place elsewhere in the universe um and when we study animals on earth we're not really just studying what's specific about earth we're studying about what those processes are how animals come to be the way they are how they come to behave the way they are to look the way they look and and although there are some things of course that are specific about earth our atmosphere our oceans and so on there's still the processes of evolution they're still the same processes that are going to be
0: taking place elsewhere in the universe. That was what was kind of a, a light bulb moment for me reading this book. Was that, you know, our understanding of the universe is that there are things that are universal, right? Physics, biology, and as you bring up early in this book, um, evolution. Uh, can you kind of expand on that? You know, why do scientists like yourself think that evolution? is universal and 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 will be found elsewhere in the universe
2: there are basically two reasons one is that when we think about life whatever kind of life you think about doesn't matter even the simplest life that there is it's incredibly incredibly complex life has to be complex to remain alive uh, in the face of just general decay which is what normally happens to things so somehow this complex life has to get complex complex things don't just pop out of of nowhere they've got to they've they've got to form somehow and it turns out that that the step-by-step accumulation of complexity is the only really feasible realistic way that we can see that complex organisms could come to exist now you might say that, that that that's a bit that's unfair that's because we're saying we can't think of anything else maybe there are things we haven't thought of but the second reason is that we understand a lot about evolution by natural selection. And one of the things we understand about it is that it's inevitable. If certain conditions are met, certain criteria are met, natural selection will occur. Not just in life, you know, it occurs in in internet memes, it occurs in computer software. Uh, It's a very fundamental mathematical process. So we can be very confident that as long as these basic conditions are met, natural selection will occur. Uh, and that makes it a, a very very strong candidate for for life across the universe.
0: So what can animals on earth reveal about aliens? What what do we think that um these these beings will will look like? How will they behave uh based upon, you know, your research and and what we study here on Earth?
2: The kinds of things that I talk about in the book really fall into two categories. One is how life reacts to physical laws, uh, just the laws of the universe, things like gravity, uh, things like friction, the way that animals move, the way that animals communicate uh, is constrained by physics. So sound travels through air, it doesn't travel through a vacuum. Um, Light travels through air, it doesn't travel through rock. So these kinds of things are, are physical constraints and they're certainly physical constraints that will apply on any planet. But the other thing that that I talk about are constraints on life that are caused by biological laws. And these laws that we're only really just starting to to understand in, in great detail arise necessarily out of natural selection. And these will lead to things like, for instance, social behavior. So the fact that animals will cooperate, the conditions under which they'll cooperate, the conditions under which they'll form cooperative groups, uh, the conditions under which they'll just compete and and won't cooperate. These are quite tightly constrained by by mathematical rules. And so when we understand them from from what's happening on Earth, we can extrapolate them to to other planets as well.
0: You've talked about um, how reproduction is crucial in the diversity of life here on Earth with you know with evolution um do you have the feeling that 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 would be the same on other worlds what would alien reproduction <laughs> look like well the the
2: details of how aliens reproduce are pretty much hidden to us. We, do, we 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 can't we can't really speculate. It. We know they must reproduce. They must. And and that's quite simply because if there's no reproduction, there can't be an accumulation of complexity of life, all right? If you just are immortal and you live forever, you're never going to get more complex if you're starting off as a, as a little bacterium or something like that. So, so there has to be reproduction for natural selection to work for that complexity to accumulate, for bacteria to evolve into more complex life forms, and, and, and for a whole ecosystem, a whole diverse ecosystem to arise. So reproduction there must be. But on the other hand, we only really know of, of a very small number of, of, of methods of reproduction here on Earth. And what's more, all life on Earth is based on DNA so the reproduction the way that children inherit or offspring inherit their, their characteristics from their parents is constrained by DNA itself and we can't be sure that DNA is the molecule of inheritance that's used on other planets so whereas we happy to believe that that children have two parents um, one male one female for all we know on another planet um, all the offspring might have three fathers, two mothers, uh, seven parents of some other gender and and a few other things as well we have no We have no way of knowing and no way of constraining
0: that i 'm wondering why, as a zoologist, you are looking at alien life. There's tons of animals here on Earth. Have you just run out of animals to study? <laughs> why, do I, why did you direct your research at this?
2: I still study animals here. I work <laughs> with wolves. I work with dolphins. I work with a lot of animals here. It is important to realize what zoologists do. I think a lot of people think that, that zoologists go around classifying animals and, and, and describing them and so on. But actually, what really interests us are the mechanisms by which animals are the way that they are. Mm-hmm. Why is it? That animals that some animals cooperate in groups and other ma- animals live alone, these kinds of, of mechanistic explanations is really what we 're after and since those mechanistic explanations are going to be common to across a, a wide range of of conditions then, then actually it 's not that different to be a zoologist on earth and to be a zoologist. On another planet, we're still looking at the same things. Why do some animals um, communicate with with complex language? Why do some animals use only very simple signals? These are the kinds of questions we look at on Earth. They're the same questions that we would look at on another planet as well.
0: You mentioned earlier astrobiology, and, and I know that there's been more and more research in this field, especially I'm thinking about the most recent Mars rover that's on the hunt for ancient signs of life on, on the red planet. Uh, for you and scientists in your field, I mean, how excited are you to see these dedicated missions looking for signs of life on other planets and how does that kind of you know relate to the work that you're doing in the zoological field i think
2: that the the atmosphere has changed tremendously in in the last 20 years i think we all scientists in all disciplines are now realizing that life elsewhere in the universe is almost a certainty almost a certainty and even if if people kind of believe that until recently what 's really changed is that we 're starting to understand that we are are developing the technologies that will allow us to discover that life so when we look when we look at all the work that 's being done on on examining the atmospheres of, of planets around other stars, we think we 're going to be able to look at the chemicals that exist in those atmospheres and draw conclusions about about possible life on those planets mm-hmm. so so there's really been a change in which people are taking much more seriously this idea of what might alien life be like mm-hmm. when we discover it um, a lot of thought about the biochemistry of course because that's a lot easier to study in the lab but once complex life evolves on a planet then it's very very likely that a complex ecosystem will evolve around it and so there's also a need to be thinking about about a, a broader view of what life is like and what 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 an alien planet would look like with life on it.
0: Um, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you a little bit about the portrayal of aliens in science fiction. Um, you know, as, as an expert in your field, what what does Hollywood get wrong about these? And are there any examples of of science fiction getting this uh, portrayal of alien right, uh, correct?
2: I'm a big fan of science fiction, and I'm not going to criticize them too much, because I know that, that the role of entertainment is 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 actually quite profound right we want to know a lot about the nature of life it doesn't Mm -hmm. matter all that much what they look like it matters how they behave and so even if the hollywood budgets are a little limited and they can't do quite as much makeup um, as we might find realistic what's actually exciting about about tv shows like star trek for instance is how these animals are interacting how these aliens are interacting and you know they're they're exploring issues that have particularly issues of conflict uh, issues of conflict resolution, how to how to get on together, how, how, um, how to, to compete with each other. These are issues that are playing out in the animal world on Earth now, and uh, I'm sure are playing out on, on alien planets as well. So I think that while the visual representations may be somewhat guesswork, I tend to think that, that, that um, a lot of the stuff that's done in science fiction is asking really interesting questions, which we should be asking as well.
0: Uh, and finally, Eric, it's it's pretty unlikely that you and I will come across a alien life so i'm wondering why you think it's so important for us to be asking these questions now and thinking about this um when we probably won't cross paths with these things anytime soon
2: well i think it's it's unlikely that we will ever visit an alien planet i think this is so far beyond not just our technology but how we can imagine our technology to be that it, it does seem very unlikely that that astrozoologists will be studying alien animals with binoculars I, I i think this is i think this is unlikely but that doesn't mean that we're not going to discover alien life because as i said our technology for probing what's going on on these very distant planets is improving dramatically mm-hmm. now we may not be able to know whether these life forms on another planet should we discover them have 6 legs or 8 legs or or, or 12 legs that would would be asking um, perhaps a little bit too much, uh, but there 's also of course the possibility um, that we will encounter intelligent alien life that perhaps we will be able to find out about alien life by communicating uh, with technological species elsewhere in the in the galaxy um, and, and that of course would be would be a, a tremendous a tremendous advancement let 's just hope that they have the alien equivalent of David Attenborough so that we can see what their animals are really like. <laughs>
0: Well, we've been speaking with Cambridge zoologist Arik Kirschenbaum. His new book is The Zoologist's Guide to the Galaxy What Animals on Earth Reveal About Aliens and Ourselves. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much. That's going to do it for this week's show. If you're not already, be sure to subscribe to the show's podcast feed and never miss an episode. Subscribe on NPR1, iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Are we there yet? It's a production of WMFE, America's Space Station. Editorial guidance this week from Nicole Darden-Creston. Our intern is Kirk Churchill, and our director of content is Steve Yasko. Support for Aria There Yet comes from our listeners. Until next week, I'm Brendan Byrne. Thanks for listening.